the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians, there's a beautiful picture of the church of the living God. Beginning in the account in verse 21, Paul says, Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For as the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. No man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. And we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this cause shall man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. I want to talk tonight about the church, the beautiful bride of Christ. That's actually what the Apostle Paul's talking about and this passage of Scripture, he uses the analogy of the relationship of a husband and wife to describe the relationship that Jesus has to his church. There are many figures that are used in the New Testament to describe the church of the living God. Back in Ephesians chapter 4 and Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Colossians 1 and verse 18, the church is described as being the body of Christ. If you turn, for instance, in the book of Ephesians in the second chapter, back at verse 19 and verse 21, the church is described as being the household of God. If you look through the pages of the New Testament, you'll see various illustrations of it. It's called the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19. If you look at 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, it's described as God's husbandry. It's described by many illustrations. But there are none that are so beautiful as the description given in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. The church is the bride of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the beauty of the church is seen in the fact that she is the bride of Christ. I think as we read and study this passage together tonight, we can see the beautiful church of the living God the bride of Christ. In the first place, let me suggest that the beauty of the church is seen in the fact that there is but one bride. It's seen in its singularity. If you look at the illustration that Paul uses, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. One does not have but one wife. One wife does not have but one husband. 
If you turn back to the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, the apostle Paul uses this same illustration when he says, beginning with verse 2, But the woman which has a husband is bound by the law of her husband so long as she liveth. But if the husband be dead, she's free or loose from the law of her husband. So then if her husband liveth, she be married, or while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's freed from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now look at Paul's poem. Wherefore, my brethren, you're become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Jesus has his bride, the church of the living God, and he only has one bride. The beauty of the bride of Christ is seen in her singularity. I mentioned a moment ago that there are various figures that are used in the New Testament to describe the church, and one of those figures is that of being the body of Christ. In the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, in verse 22 and verse 23, he said he put all things under his feet, and gave him the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fitteth all in all. Colossians 1 and verse 18 says the same thing. The church is the body of Christ. When you turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, in verse 4, Paul said, There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called and one hope of your calling. Jesus never promised to build but one church. Matthew 16, 18 he said, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If Jesus is the builder, the founder of more than one church today, that means that he has more than one wife. And Romans 7 and verse 4 says that if that's the case, then Jesus is living in adultery. But verse 5 says that's not the case, and that Jesus only has one bride or one church that he has purchased with his own blood. The beauty of the church is seen in her singularity, the fact that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. In the second place, the beauty of the church is seen in her submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says here in Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 21. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, now underscore Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be unto their own husbands in everything. The beauty of the bride of Christ is seen in the fact that it is submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ and subject unto Him. That means that we do Bible things in Bible ways. 
That means that we speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. That means that everything that we do, we do by the authority of Christ. Why? We're submissive to Christ. We are subject to Christ. Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. How dare we ignore the authority of Christ? If we are the beautiful bride of Christ, we will be submissive as a wife is submissive under her own husband, being in subjection unto the Lord Jesus Christ. We are willing to submit unto the Lord in everything. That means that there's nothing that the church of the living God can do tonight for which there is no authority because we are subject to Christ in everything. We must have authority. We must be able from the objective source, the truth, the Bible, the Word of God, the New Testament to produce authority for everything that we practice in our religious lives tonight. The beauty of the church of the living God is seen in her subjection and her submission under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, the beauty of the Lord's church is seen in the fact that she is the saved. Look at verse 23. It says, For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. There are no people in this earth tonight who are saved, who are not members of the body of Christ, who are not members of the church of the living God. Why? Because the very same thing that saves one, the same thing that gives one the remission of their past sins, makes one a member of the church of the living God. That's what Ephesians 5 is saying in verse 23. He is the Savior of the body. Those who are in the body are the saved. And those who are saved are in the body. Let's look at a Bible example conversion to see that in action. Turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. There are those people who hear the preaching of Peter and the other apostles. They realize they're lost. They see themselves in sin, and they are without hope. And they cry out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And verse 38 says, And then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children, unto all those that are far off, even as many as the Lord God should call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward or this crooked generation. Now underscore. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized. And there was added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. You don't see that language before Acts 2 and verse 41. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and there was added. That's unusual language. To what were they added? 
they were added to the church. Look at verse 47, which is a divine commentary on Acts 2.41. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The American Standard says such as were being saved. Those who were saved were added by the Lord unto his church. Why? The same thing that gave them the forgiveness of their sins added them unto the body of Christ, added them unto the church of the living God. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in the 12th chapter of that book, in verse 13, Paul says, For what by one Spirit are you all baptized into one body? What have we found that that one body is? Well, we read from Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, that teaches that he is the head of the body, the church. The body and the church is parallel. They were all baptized into one church. The thing that gave them the forgiveness of their sins in Acts 2, 38, added them to the body of Christ, the church, in Acts 2, 41, and Acts 2, 47, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. The saved are in the church. And the church is the saved. Those who are saved are added by the Lord into his church. There's nothing to join. But when one obeys the gospel, receives the remission of his sins by his obedience thereunto, he's added by the Lord into his church. The beauty of the bride of Christ is seen in the fact that the church is the saved. There are those who are saved who are not in the church, but there are not those who are saved who are not in the church. By that I mean those who have not reached an age of accountability, who have never obeyed the gospel, have never received the forgiveness of their sins, for they have no sins, but they are in a safe condition. But the saved are those who have sinned. And those who have obeyed the gospel, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John 8, 24, repenting of their sins, Luke 13, 3 and 5, confessing the noble name of Jesus, 1 Timothy 6, 12, and being baptized for the mission of sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. When they receive the forgiveness of their sins, they're saved, and they're added by the Lord unto his body, unto his church. But not only that, in the fourth place, the beauty of the Lord's church is seen in the sacrifice that was paid for her. If you look back at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. We weigh things or place value by what it costs. If I'm going to see the value of something, I want to know what it costs. What's it going to cost me? If I go buy a car, I want to know what's the cost involved in that. And I place value on it by the cost that's involved. The cost that's involved in the church was the precious blood of the Son of God. Acts 20 and verse 28 that was read a few moments ago. Paul said to the elders of the church at Ephesus, Take heed to yourselves of the whole flock to which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers or shepherds 
the feet, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus was willing to pay the price of laying his life down so that the church might be brought into existence. In the 15th chapter of the book of John, verse 13, the Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, Peter says, You were redeemed not with corruptible things such as silver or gold, your vain conversation received after the addition of the fathers, but by the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without spot and without blemish, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world for you. The beauty of the bride of Christ is seen in the sacrifice of Jesus that he was willing to give his life so that she might be bought, so that she might be purchased, and he was willing to pay that price. But not only that, in the fifth place, the beauty of the bride of Christ is seen in his sincere love for her. Underscore the fact that here in Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Look at the great love that we read about in John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than these than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus loved the church so much that he was willing to pay the supreme sacrifice he was willing to leave the portals of heaven, willing to come to this earth, and willing to die on the cross to suffer that day because of his great love for us. In the book of 1 John, in the third chapter of that book, it says in verse 16, Hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. You see, the love of Jesus is a love that ought to be reciprocated. We ought to love him in return because he loved us so much that he was willing to lay down his life, willing to die in our place. In 1 John 4 and verse 19, the account says we love because he first loved us. In 1 John 4 and verse 9, he said, and this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because he sent his only begotten Son in the world, that we might live through him. He in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. We ought to reciprocate that love. John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, verse 15. That's the way that the bride of Christ reciprocates or demonstrates or manifests or shows its love for the Savior who demonstrated by the laying down of his life on the cross our love in return for his love. In the book of Second Corinthians, in the fifth chapter of that book in verse 14, the account says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all dead. And did he die for all? 
that they should henceforth no longer live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose again. When we love Jesus as the bride of Christ, we submit ourselves unto his will. We no longer live our lives for self, but we, in that unselfish love of the Lord, live for him. The love of Jesus is a serving love. If you look back at the 13th chapter of the book of John, you'll find the occasion when they're going to observe the Passover feast. They've come in and no one of the apostles is willing to take a towel and gird himself, to go around and to wash the feet of the apostles so that they may purify themselves to observe that Passover feast. But the Son of God was willing in his sincerity to take that towel to sacrifice, to be unselfish, and to wash the feet of the disciples. One of the most beautiful passages in all the Bibles found in John 13 and verse 17, where Jesus said, If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. We need to follow in the footsteps of the sincere love of the Lord Jesus Christ, a serving love, to be willing to serve others. But not only that, the beauty of the church of the living God is seen in the fact that she has been sanctified by the word of God. If you look at verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Jesus has sanctified the church of the living God through the word. If you turn to the book of Second Thessalonians, in the second chapter of that book, in verse 13, he said, But we are bound to give thanks to God always to you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. How did that sanctification of the Spirit take place? By the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And by the sacrifice of Jesus as he died for our sins on the cross. Turning to the book of Hebrews, in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, beginning with verse 9, the account says, Then said he, Lo, I am come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he might establish the second. By which will we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting till his enemies should be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected them that are sanctified. Through the offering of the blood of Jesus, he sanctified his bride through his word. The church of the living God. What does that mean? That simply means that we have been set apart from the world 
set apart to do the work that God intends that we do. We're set apart from, but we're set apart for. We're set apart from the world, set apart to do His work. In Colossians 1 and verse 13, Paul said that we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His own dear Son. We've been set apart in our purity to be the Lord's people. We're saints of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. We're a holy people. And that simply means that we are set apart to do His work. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, he says that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. We are the work of the Lord and we do the work of the Lord. In Ephesians 4 and verse 1, he said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation whereunto you were called. In Ephesians 1 and verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God afore hath prepared that we should walk in them. The saints of God, the sanctified, are set apart to do the work of the living God. They were in sin, but they've had those sins cleansed, washed by the blood of the Lamb, so that they no longer live for sin, but now they live for the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first Corinthian letter, in the sixth chapter of that letter, Paul said, beginning of verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abuse themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of ye, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Here are those who formerly walked in sin, but now they are the bride of Christ sanctified in Christ Jesus. The beauty of the bride is seen in the fact that the church is sanctified by the washing of water by the Word. In the next place, the beauty of the Lord's church is seen in the fact that she is spotless. If you look at the next verse, it says in verse 27 that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Do you want to go to heaven when life's over? The only way you can go there is to be spotless, to be holy and without blemish. The beauty of the bride of Christ is seen in the fact that she's spotless. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 16, God said, Be ye holy as I am holy. God's people are spotless. They're blameless. Does that mean that they live perfect lives? Does that mean that they live sinless lives? It does not. But it means that they are made spotless, they are made blameless, they are made holy by the provisions of the gospel of Christ. If you turn with me in the book of Luke, in the first chapter of the book of Luke, you read about the parents of John the Baptist. And it says that both Zechariah and Elizabeth, verse 6, 
were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, but blameless. Now, if you want a good commentary on Ephesians 5, 27, and that the church is blameless, it's holy, it's spotless, there it is. Here are those that had taken the provisions of Judaism. And under Judaism, as they kept the law of Moses, they walked before God blameless. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful to the provisions of Judaism. The same thing is true of a New Testament Christian. They're not perfect people. The church, as I mentioned a moment ago, is made up of the saints. But does that mean that they never commit sin? There's nobody like that. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. And yet the church is saved. The church is spotless. The church is blameless. The church is holy. How can that be? Turn to the book of 1 John. In the first chapter of the book of 1 John in verse 6, he says, if, I, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the truth not in us. How she spotless through her faithfulness to God's covenant, through the provisions of the gospel, through the blood of Jesus that was shed for her sins. As Christians turn from their sins, confess their faults, they receive the forgiveness of their sins, and through the provisions of the gospel, they are spotless. They're blameless. They're not perfect, but faithful to the Lord, they'll receive a crown of righteousness. The beauty of the Lord's church is seen in the fact that one day a spotless church, one without sin, will be presented to God through the provisions of the gospel. Sin cannot be in the presence of God Almighty. Yet through the gospel we can be forgiven. And we can enjoy the provision of being spotless before God. But then again, the beauty of the Lord's church is seen in the fact that she provides or he provides sustenance for her. Look at verse 29 and the account says, No man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it even as the Lord the church. What would we think of a husband that made no provisions for his family? Well, Paul says he's worse than an infidel. We wouldn't think too much of it. The Lord Jesus Christ nourishes the church of the living God. He provides sustenance for her. In Matthew 5 and verse 6, the account says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The provisions of the sustenance of the gospel that's provided for us in the New Testament so that we might read and be nourished and grow as Christians. 
Newborn babes desire the spiritual milk of the word is that guile that you may grow thereby into salvation. First Peter 2 and verse 2. He provides sustenance for the truth of the matter. The book of Romans through the book of Revelation is given us to provide sustenance for the church of the living God so that we might grow and become more mature as the children of God. But not only that, the Lord's church is seen in all of its beauty and the fact that she finds her satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that if there's a marriage and the husband does not find satisfaction in the wife, and the wife does not find her satisfaction in the husband, that that marriage is doomed? Look at the account. He says, For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes, even as Christ the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. The Lord has provided satisfaction in Christ. The truth of the matter, you'll never live a happy, abundant life outside of Christ. Men may try, but they'll always be searching. They'll always find something lacking within their life. Turn back to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, and he says, Be not drunk with wine wherein there's access, but be filled with the Spirit. Why is it that people drink? Why is it that people take drugs? They're looking for and searching for something that's lacking within their lives. When in the reality of things, the only satisfaction that there can be is in the provisions of the gospel. He's given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3. That's the only place that we'll ever find true satisfaction is in the gospel of Jesus. In Psalms and 7 and verse 9, it says, For he satisfieth the longing soul, and he filleth the hungry soul with goodness. There's not but one place to find true satisfaction, to satisfy all the men's greater needs, and that's in the gospel of Christ and in the church of the living God. In the 36th Psalm, beginning with verse 5, he says, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reaches under the clouds. The righteous are like the great mountains, thy judgment are a great deep. O Lord, thy preservest man and beast. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust underneath the shadow of thy wings. They shall abundantly be satisfied with the fatness of thy house. The Lord's church provides satisfaction. In Christ there is provision to satisfy the deeper longings of man's soul. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he'll give thee the desires of thy heart. Finally, the beauty of the Lord's church is seen in its solidarity. That's what Paul's talking about in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. He's talking about the unity and the oneness that's found in the church of the living God. Listen to what he says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. There is but one body, and in that one body one can find the deeper desires of his heart. The unity of the Lord's church makes that possible. Sin scatters. Sin scatters one from others, and it scatters one from within. It'll make one a two-souled man, according to James 1 and verse 8. 
The only thing that can put that back together is the cross of Christ. And in the church of the living God, one can find the pleasantness of unity. How pleasant it is. Brethren dwell together in unity. Psalms 133 in verse 1. In the Lord's church, there's solidarity. There's the thing that where we can find help as we walk down the pathway of life. How dreary it would be to go down that road alone. But because of the fact that we're in the family of God, because of the unity and the beauty of the church of the living God, the beauty of the Lord's church shown to all the ages, Galatians chapter or chapter 3 and verse 10 and 11, we can find satisfaction. We walk as the family of God, hand in hand, united in the Lord Jesus Christ, big and little, great and small in the eyes of the world, but one on an equal level before God in the church of the living God. Solidarity with God. Be at one with Him. How beautiful it is. To walk together with God. One of the prettiest passages in all the Bibles found to me in the second chapter of the book of Genesis where God walked with Adam and Eve in the beauty of the garden. And in Genesis 3, you find that God had walked with them in the cool of the day. What a wonderful thing that unity in that fellowship is. But those outside of Christ do not enjoy. Christ came and through the church, the provisions that have been given up by sin can be reunited to God to be in fellowship with him and enjoy that unity that Adam lost in the garden as a member of the body of Christ. What a wonderful thing through Christ to be in fellowship with God and in fellowship one with another as members of his church. Are you here tonight and not a Christian? If not, I urge you to give up sin. And in giving up sin, the Lord will add you unto his body, believing that he is the Christ, turn from sin, confess him before men, be immersed in water for the mission of sins, and then walk with him as a part of his bride. One of the most beautiful things I know of in this life is marriage in the home. Isn't it wonderful? that the Lord so described his church to be his bride, to be a part of that bride and enjoy the provisions that are there as the Lord our husband provides for us. You're not a Christian. You don't have that. Won't you be married to him tonight while together we stand and sing?